Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Negotiation. On today's show, we talk with Philip Beck, chairman at Dubetta, discussing lookalike data, managing bad PR, and capability mapping. What is your favorite Chinese brand and why? My favorite brand is Xiaomi, the uh, mobile phone handset. Uh, because when it launched in China, I think Lei Jun, the founder, had obviously read the book Lean Startup, uh, and then you know, a spin-off came, Lean Manufacturing. But uh, when he launched the phone, he said to the Chinese public, I want to be able to give you a smartphone that has the same functionality as an Apple iPhone at one-tenth of the price. And I'm going to not launch one new version every year, but I'm going to keep iterating my product until it's the best. And that's exactly what he did. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Philip, welcome to the show. You and I are our old friends. Uh, we have uh, done uh, multiple recordings uh, before, and so thank you once again for jumping on with us. Thanks for having me, Todd. Okay, so let's jump in. The first, uh, the first question I want to ask is uh, a little bit open-ended. What is your China story? Because it's super interesting uh, and relatively long, I think, for most people who have been in China. How long have you been there? So tell us that. And, and what has kept you busy and planted in China? Sure. I've been here for living and working here for 14 years, so since 2005, but actually came to do business here for the first time in 1995. And, uh, you know, my perceptions back then were bicycles everywhere because it was Beijing and uh, it was about as big as the second ring road, whereas now the population is, is much, much larger. But it all went back to when I was eight years old and my father brought me here uh, to to actually Guangzhou. Oh, wow. Um, and that was just a real eye-opener for me as an eight-year-old, and I still have these memories of seeing people cycling down the street on their bicycle with two dead chickens hanging off the handlebars um, and just thought, this is a crazy place compared yeah. to my homeland of Australia. But, um, yes, yeah, so since 2005, and initially that was to, to run the publicist group which is a French-listed advertising agency group, and did that. And then 2009, decided to step away from the corporate world after 32 years of being in the corporate world and get into the startup world because I think I'd always been a bit of a geek since I was a kid, um, you know, building my crystal radio set and then uh, using relays at the time to do the binary yes, no, yes, no, or one, zero, one, zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, got, in, got into the startup world. And I think that came from having started Australia's first uh, digital media agency in 1995 and then China's 
uh, first digital media agency in 2005 with, with Publicis. But, but yeah, since 2009, uh, working with local Chinese tech startups in China as, a, as an angel investor. And, and then about three years ago, that 100% of my time started morphing more into now 50% advising and working with what I would call more traditional international brands that have operations in China or want to enter the China market and, and you know, how do they do that? And my focus that I bring to the table is how do they digitize their operations in China and importantly, how they use digital technology to reach potential consumers and then serve those consumers once they've acquired them. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. But I want to... I have to ask you, what was digital marketing like in 2005? Oh, it was less than than 5% of a client's spend. And I remember when I set up CMX Digital with publicists, a lot of uh, all the markets sort of looking at me going, what are you doing? And then, you know, if we sort of fast forward from 2005 to to now, uh, in China at least, you know, uh, all clients across China and now allocating at least 68%, but in most cases, 75% of their entire consumer marketing budget to, to digital. So, yeah, it's it's evolved incredibly quickly. I can only imagine. I, just yeah. from the, the models, the, the modems, the mediums, everything uh, must, have, must have changed. Plus the technologies, the, the, the way that people interacted with brands and, and you know, you know, we talked before the show about, you know, my tendency to want to go off script and here's a perfect example. I mean, where were you focusing digital spending on in the 2005, 2006, 2007? It, it couldn't have been on as much as it is a, would be on mobile today. You know, where, where, was, where was this 5% being spent? Yes, yeah, so it was desktop and, and back then our approach to digital was more like offline. You know, it's right. we, we sort of treated digital as a, like an online broadcast medium. And, you know, you've got to think about Baidu and Weibo. Back when digital was radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, the concept of um, being able to uh, refine your targeting as you can now, like you can, you can be very granular in Sure. targeting who you want to serve sure. up your ads. But, you know, back then there wasn't the depth of uh, data like we have now with the WeChat wallet and Alipay uh, because, you know, they understand what you and I are doing not only in the online world through their assets but also what we're doing in the offline world with our digital wallet. So that sort of granularity of consumer data didn't exist back in 2005. So in a lot of cases we were, you know, taking – guesses on okay well we'll use Weibo for this target audience because of the content uh, it seems like that this would be an appropriate media digital media for the client but yeah. you know, fast forward to 2019 I can um, if I was like luck and coffee the, the uh, Chinese startup that's taken on Starbucks they could go to an Alibaba or Tencent and say I want to target females between the age of 22 and 26 that live in Beijing 
and who spend at least 20 RMB a day at a Starbucks store. Bang, I can serve up ads to that group and you know, try and switch them to luck and coffee. And there's you know, many examples of being really, really super targeted. Or if I use a word in the West, um, you know, Facebook, they talk about building a lookalike audience yeah. so you can target new consumers. Well, the lookalike audience profiling in China is, you know, at least two to three times stronger than what you can get on Facebook, which, you know, it's strong that Alibaba and Tencent and to a lesser extent ByteDance with TikTok and Douyin as, you know, masters at that. Yeah, right. let's run with that. I, I don't want to leave that. Um, I find that super interesting. Uh, and it's not something that we, you know, talked about before the show. Um Look like data. It's not something that we've actually talked about on the show before, and I think it is. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating. Um, I don't have a very accurate, intelligent question to 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 ask about. That's that. okay. I, I want you to just um, tell me a little bit about you because we we know what that looks like in in the U.S. and like you said with Facebook. But but what is it? Why is it important? And and how does it work? How how does it how does it live in China? How, how do you use it? Sure. I'll use uh, Coach, the American bag brand, as an example. Perfect. Um, So, you know, years ago, they were one of the first brands to have an official WeChat account. And they understood that if I could get Todd to bind his mobile phone number to the official account, so, you know, effectively you giving them agreement to have your mobile phone number, they could then through the back end of Tencent because they've got your mobile phone number now, they can see your real name, location, gender, device. Um, And then if they were smart, which they were, at getting additional information from you like your birthday, they could then start following what you were liking on their WeChat official account through, you know, heat map technology so they could go Mm -hmm. and they could see what you liked. They could see what you shared with your friends. Um, And with that knowledge, they started building a profile of, of you. And they did that with, with all their followers. And so now they've got more than, you know, 4 million followers on their official WeChat account. Uh, if that person goes on to the Timor flagship store and buys something, it's the same mobile phone number. So they, that's another data point they collect. If you go into a store and buy something, the assistant is trained to ask you, you know, you're following us on a WeChat account. Yeah. So they're capturing all these data points. If sure. you were to go to, uh, you know, fly to New York, then when you land in New York, you've got a welcome message from coach so because they know your geolocation. So this um, behavior by brands to capture consumer information is something that more than 65% of the brands in China are doing now. And so with this consumer profile data, they have this lookalike audience that they can then go to other platforms and say, I want to serve up ads to this sort of person. So okay. their ability to be able to target is just getting you know, better and better and better. So they just really, really understand uh, an entire breadth of their customer that they can now copy paste into 
other platforms. Um, you gather it from one and then you deploy that to many and say, find yeah. these same people on your platform and your platform and your platform. Yep. So a little bit about when you land in New York, coach sends you a welcome message. Mm -hmm. We know that that doesn't necessarily fly with North Americans. They would be <laughs> freaked out and creeped out. And, you know, that started way back with the whole, uh, you know, Target advertising to the pregnant teen whose father found out and freaked out. And then, you know, Target knew that his daughter was pregnant before he did. And yep. it was just through her behaviors and, and shopping um, behaviors. So, and, and, and those stories have been run rampant. I, you know, there was the great hack and we talk about uh, the Cambridge Analytica stuff like this. I want to ask you about what your feeling is on the culture of China as the consumer and how they've adapted and adopted. Um, and are they, do, would they have the same reaction to the same kind of things um, or are they just much more okay with it? I think they're just much more okay with it. And, you know, like every consumer around the world, if, if you um, were to take advantage of, you know, because when I, like if I use the coach example or any other brand, when I agree to give you my mobile phone number, you know, that's, that's my conscious decision to do that. I can at any point delete if you were to do the wrong thing. And in China, you've got to understand that, Chinese consumers are merciless when it comes to a brand doing the wrong thing. And I'll use Costco as an example. You know, it opened with great fanfare in Shanghai last week and, you know, lots of people in the store and blah, 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 and having to do crowd control. And this week they're doing crowd control with people demanding refunds uh, all because of some, some claims that were made by Costco when they launched about the annual membership program that a lot of Chinese consumers sort of feel is not so true. So there's a big backlash. So, you know, when foreigners sort of freak out about data privacy, I think they have this feeling that, you know, it's big brother in China, but, you know, I'm, I'm using my digital wallet to pay for things on through Alipay or WeChat pay you know, I know that they can track my purchasing behavior. I think everyone in China gets that. But what over, overrides, you know, I think some of the talk in the West, and I think this will occur in the West as time goes by, is the word convenience. It's just so convenient to be able to use my smartphone for almost everything in China. Payments, taking the subway, getting on the bus. No, I, I'm just using my smartphone. Yeah. And sure, oh, yeah. you know, for sure. someone knows all about that. But, you know, my attitude is, and this is, um, you know, I can't really talk for America or Canada, but um, you know, in my own homeland of Australia, I know that they're tracking Australians and what they're doing as part of the, you know, their, their assessment of what any terrorist threat might be. Yeah. So I think we're sort of fooling ourselves if we think that uh, any government around the world is not doing some tracking of some sort. And what I think will eventually come to the fore around the world is the, you know, the, the deployment of technology, smartphones, just makes life incredibly convenient for people. And it always does my head in. And, you know, I was in the US a couple of weeks ago 
when I've been, you know, because in China I just carry my mobile phone with me. That's all I need. And then, you know, in the US it's going, oh, I've got to have cash. I've got to have credit cards. Just- yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went through the same reverse culture shock with uh, when I came back as well. Um, I just, mm. I just, this having to have cash thing. I mean, to for me, the angst over having to actually go to an ATM, and if it's not, mm. and if it's not my own banks, and then being hit with a two dollar, three dollar fee, to just yep. like the frustration. <laughs> it's, it's, it's. Uh, um, it's not normal. I, I just, uh, I think, oh my gosh, this is totally normal for people over here. But for me, it's frustrating me uh, intensely. Yeah. Well, um, I just, uh, I just completed a. It was just a little t- um, challenge I gave myself twelve months ago. But I, I set myself up this challenge of not using any cash in China for twelve months, and it was so easy. Oh, I gosh. still have. I still have the 860 RMB, which I carried in my pocket every day uh, and didn't, didn't touch it. I'm Sorry. surprised it wasn't 880. Um, <laughs> it should have been for good luck. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask one more thing about talking about um, managing backlash because you mentioned the Costco thing. And, and boy, I tell you, once that, once, that, uh, once that train gets rolling as far as a backlash, there's one thing about China is that stuff can go viral. And yep. they will, as a as a country, um, absolutely ostracize you as a brand. And so, mm. when entering China, and the the companies that you advise, do you recommend that a at least something is built in as far as a a PR management uh, fallback option, or at least budget for that is put in play? Definitely you've got to have a budget for, you know, the, we use the word here, PR crisis, but you have to have a PR crisis budget um, to deal with that. But at the same time, you know, have it. But really what I encourage uh, foreign companies to do is to just be sensitive to how you promote yourself in China. You know, don't like Versace, don't make stupid mistakes of calling Hong Kong or Taiwan a separate country. You know, it's greater China. Um, right. On, right, on your right. website. Yeah. You know, don't, don't do that. Um, you know, they released T-shirts recently that had that like a month ago and then had to recall them, obviously. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, Dolce & Gabbana, you know, classic examples. So... Yeah, just just being sensitive to to how you do business in China and how you promote your brand. Um, so for that to happen, they've just got to make sure they've got people on board, or they use an agency that that you know understands the Chinese culture, understands the Chinese sensitivities. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to have millions of people that will overnight make comments about your brand and destroy it. And yeah. Procter and Gamble years ago had to exit one of their brands from the Chinese market because they just couldn't recover. Talking to your work or speaking to the work that you do now, and everybody has a uh, inter intercompany liaison or the people that you actually dialogue with on a regular basis. How do you work with them and how do you actually enable them so that the entire project is effective, but that they are able to take what you know? Because we know that you're you're delivering to them a lot of 
novel and new and probably difficult to chew on um, advice and steps and budget that they then need to take back up the chain in within their own company to get approval or some such. How do you work with them, enable them? What do you work on with them uh, so that the entire operation is more successful and, and smoother? Normally what I try and do is to understand uh, what does their board understand about China at the moment? And 90% of the time, I find that their understanding is incredibly limited because uh, it might end up being one paragraph in a board report or maybe a 15-minute discussion. When and, and they don't really understand where China is going to be in the next 10 to 20 years. So first clarify what's their level of understanding. 90% of the time it's, it's incredibly small. So then what I normally demand is that I have a conversation with the board. And I say, don't talk about budgets or anything like that. I really take them through, you know, it's a Philip Beck intro of this is China and where it's heading mm. and understand that, you know, by 2030, if you're a global brand, more than half your entire global revenue is going to be coming from China and from Chinese consumers. And that's, you know, more and more clients are starting to understand that. It, it scares them. Um, but, you know, it's then saying, so what are you doing as a business to, one, understand China, two, understand how do you take your existing product and adapt it if you have to, with Chinese characteristics, but more, it's more, you know, getting their mind around China, giving them an understanding and trying to understand what is their risk appetite for China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's one company, I can't say their name, but uh, four years ago, and they've been here for like 18 years, but they've really um, been through a lot. So the risk appetite hasn't been that great. But their understanding also, even though they've been here for such a long time, has not been great. Mm. But it's taken them four years now through some education, getting them brought out here to China at least every six months and, and not just going to tier one cities but other cities and to really understand China or get a better understanding of China. And, you know, last year they finally made the decision to accelerate the growth of their business by you know, more than five times because now they they understand better what the risk is, what they need to do, and they're going to go do it. So that's normally where I start. It's, a, it's an education um, and simple things like by 2050, China's economy will be greater than America plus Europe put together. And India, India's economy, I know we're talking about China, but India will be greater than the European Union. So you've got 65% of a brand's global revenue will be coming from Asia Pacific, but most importantly, India and China. So if a global brand doesn't get this market right, it's going to fail. You mentioned when we were chatting before the show, something called capability mapping. Talk to me a little bit about and tell our listeners about what that is. So that's uh, looking at, okay, once we've agreed what the strategy is for China, then it's looking at the people in the business in China 
and doing some capability mapping on do they have the core competencies to be able to deliver against this plan? If they don't, what are the gaps? And then how do we close those gaps? And that's through, you know, I call it a 70-20-10 plan where 70% of the effort's going to come from the employee themselves and 20% from feedback from peers, direct line manager and uh, global reporting lines, and then 10% from actually, you know, formal uh, training. But we do that capability mapping, do a gap assessment, and sometimes, unfortunately, there has to be the difficult conversation of how do we manage someone out of the business because they're just not going to be appropriate mm. for what is needed moving forward, particularly when uh, some companies really do need to accelerate the digitization of their business from their supply chain through to uh, customer, you know, customer acquisition and customer service afterwards and digital marketing and e-commerce. So, Okay. Yeah, that's that's the capability mapping exercise that we go through. I like it. I like it, and it, it's definitely important. Now that we've we're running towards the end of the show, and there's a few things that I do want to cover, uh, and so we're going to make these a little more quick fire. Um, talk to, tell our listeners what is Guanxi, and uh, is it important and or necessary uh, for companies? <laughs> uh, in other markets, you'd call it networking. So just like, you know, if I, if I know Todd and I think he might be able to help me with something, I'll give you a call and say, hey, Todd, I've got this challenge. It's the same in China. Um, people think there's a lot more attached to it, but you know, at the end of the day, it's just using your network of contacts and friends to help you get things done. Yeah, it's and I, there could be even more. I mean, it is relation. I've, I've also, it's relationships, but it's, um, it's, it's funny because it's also a uh, debits and credit system. Uh, oh yeah, there is a yeah. Okay, well, like you've helped me. Yeah, there is that you know sense of obligation. There is. Yes, there is. Yes. It's funny. I, I I asked somebody for help with something, and um, once a Chinese person they they turned me down. I said why, and he said, well, because his son is getting married. I said, so what? And he said, well, then I'll get invited to the wedding. And I was like, okay, still like well, I don't get it. He's like, <laughs> if I have to go to the wedding, that means I have to give a red envelope, and if you give a red envelope, that means you're giving them cash. And so he he didn't want to he. Didn't didn't want to get an invite to the wedding because he didn't want to have to give the son who was getting married cash so he didn't want to do the favor for me because he would owe the person that he asked so it was a it was like a hilarious kind of (laughs) way of of going about i just thought this only in china only in china would that actually i I had to follow that trail of breadcrumbs um it was pretty amazing you spoke of uh the the philip beck future of china um that you have to uh you know deliverance uh, that you have to give to your clients um just real quick what are some of the trends that you're seeing out there uh, so the first one is obviously the the uh, growth in online ad spend, uh, which is now let's say 75 percent of total ad spend. Uh, the second one is that e-commerce as a channel to market for most brands will be at least twenty percent of their sales mm. by twenty twenty, and that will continue to grow in China. Um, in China, mm. so you know, got some brands who are, who are doing thirty uh, percent of their total. China sales through online commerce, whether that's through Tmall, WeChat, Jindong, you know, whatever the, the platform is. So you've got to have an e-commerce presence. 
Um, obviously, mobile in China is the place to be. If you don't have a mobile presence or not optimized for mobile, mm. then again, you're going to die. Um, the other thing, and the most important thing of all, it, and it's not a trend, it's just a basic fact, <laughs> is that uh, in China, the speed of doing business is seven times quicker than the West. So I always use this analogy of seven years equals one in China. It's like dog years. So, yeah. So if you don't move quickly, if you don't make decisions quickly, if your company organizational structure is incredibly centralized or central command and control, that's just not going to work in China. You've got to figure out a way that you can deploy decision-making and build frameworks around mitigating risk that allow your people in China to make decisions quickly and move quickly because if they don't, their competition is going to eat them. And again, I'll use you know luck and coffee as an example of a, you know, a startup that's come out of nowhere to challenge uh, Starbucks. So Sure. Well, yeah. I guess we better get this podcast out within the next seven months, so we're going to have to completely redo it. <laughs> completely uh, change it. I know. Yeah. It's all new information. Uh, so uh, second last thing, um, just a couple of brands that you fancy. Um, I know I asked you off the top of the show, what is your favorite China, your, your Chinese brand? Um, mm-hmm. but what are a couple of, of brands, uh, international or foreign brands, that are doing China correctly uh, versus some that aren't? I'll go back to, you know, KFC and Volkswagen. You know, mm. They're two well-known international brands that that entered the China market, and I'll call it entered the China market with Chinese characteristics. Mm. Uh, KFC where, you know, to start with, they were selling yellow chicken, not white chicken because that's what Chinese people ate at mm. the time. And there was a, a Chinese person that had the courage to say to a senior employee at KFC, if we launch with white chicken, I think we'll fail. Um, so just little changes like that, which don't affect the brand, but just make it incredibly acceptable to the local consumer. Yeah. Um, you know, versus someone like McDonald's and to some extent General Motors that came in with their, well, this is how we do it in America. So this is how we'll do it in China. And that's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think overcoming that um, what has been traditionally a very successful um, expansion model of the standardization mm. of, of yep. uh, you know wherever you go in the world, you can a Big Mac tastes like a Big Mac, um, yeah. and maybe China is the one place in the world, and I'm sure there's going to be more where um, people aren't. Um, it doesn't it doesn't work the same. Um, Again, yep. no intelligent way to say that. Just it's not, it, it's not the go-to uh, market entry strategy. Um, you you should actually adapt and you should localize. Yeah, and the other thing I'd just like to add is when you've got brands in China being able to collect a lot of consumer information and also what consumers like and don't like. If you are doing very good social listening you can then start to understand, ah, okay, most of our portfolio has black when really it seems like a lot of our consumers want red. We need to deliver that to, if we deliver that to them, then we'll make some sales. And Shiseido, the cosmetic company, is a classic example of a brand that has, um, has, through an alliance with with, uh, Alibaba, it's getting sort of real-time feedback on what, 
consumers are looking for and then build, building a product and delivering it to them, albeit in you know, a trial basis, and then going, mm, yeah, that actually did work, and then getting the factory in Japan to actually make it in volume. Yeah. So this sort of on-demand uh, understanding of what consumers like and don't like and then feeding it into your, your, your production, you know, that mm-hmm. you've got to be nimble and agile, and that's just what you've got to be in China across everything. Last question. Give our listeners your number one piece of advice about doing business in China. I'll go back to my seven years equals one. If you don't move quickly, then you'll get eaten by the competition. Excellent. Philip, thank you very much. I appreciate you being on the show and uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks very much, Todd. Thank you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.